we're going to be hanging out. As I said, we're doing this sermon series, and we're going to be covering the passage primarily that Adam read for us from verses 12 through 19, found in chapter 4. But just to set it up, in case you haven't been with us, Peter has been writing to this group of people, to a multiple group of churches that are, are gathering in what is known as modern-day Turkey. And in that, there's probably this traveling manuscript that went from church to church, encouraging these people that were beginning to live inside a hostile um, culture that was coming against, maybe now just verbally, but would eventually become physical persecution against these people known as people of the way or Christians, followers of Jesus or little Christ. And so they began to become discouraged in walking in faithfulness, um, and yet Peter is it's telling them through the power of the Holy Spirit to find encouragement in the midst of their suffering. So if they're yelled at, screamed at, physically persecuted, emotionally persecuted, relationally persecuted, they find great hope and security. This idea of suffering has been a major theme throughout this letter written to these people. So flip a page over to 1 Peter chapter 1. In verses 6 and 7, if you remember when we journeyed through this section, he says this, In this you rejoice, though for a, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes again in chapter 2 where he says in 19 through 25 when he says this in speaking specifically to servants and then equates that as well to us as followers of Jesus. He says this in verse 19, chapter 2, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin are beaten for it, you endure but when you do good and suffer it, you endure, excuse me. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But continue entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In verse Chapter third, excuse me, chapter three, he says this, verses 14 through 18. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do not do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Later on in chapter 4, 
verses 1 and 2. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And we're going to come back to our passages later on in verses 12 through 19, but he concludes with this in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, when he says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the Lord God, all, uh, God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. So we see in the midst of trying to saturate his people with the gospel and remind them of the gospel, this overarching theme of that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are obedient in fellowship, if you truly have been saved by Jesus, then there is going to be a fruit of that salvation within this world, and that fruit will be suffering. Suffering. And in that, establishes this idea as believers in Jesus that we must suffer well as followers of Jesus. Now, there are implications here for those of us who are followers of Jesus who may be wrestling with a cancer or heart disease or um, you know, our heart just grieves. Even this, this weekend, a, a lady a family that Laura graduated with, their daughter um, was killed, they believe, on Friday night at a football game here in Allen County. And so our hearts grieve for the loss, the hurts, um, the murder, the death, all of these things that cause suffering for the non-believer and for the believer. And yet specifically, primarily, these passages are re- in regards to the suffering that is attributed to the believer for living like Jesus in this world. Brothers, sisters, it is important for us to remember this morning that if you are following Jesus, you will receive this suffering, but to remember and cling to the cross and resurrection of Jesus in the realization that this suffering is not your punishment, but instead it has a specific purpose for you as a Christian. See, the gospel, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wants us to have gospel-saturated Suffering, sin, Satan, and death will try to compel us to twist us when things are going well to worship Jesus, but when things are going in a difficult manner and when we are being relationally persecuted, maligned, made fun of, reviled, then we will begin to question whether or not this Jesus and this gospel is true. And yet, Peter, the Holy Spirit preaching through this man, is establishing within these people a deep desire and heartbeat for them to understand that Jesus is with them in the midst of this suffering, and it is for their sanctification. Theological word meaning the making us of more like Jesus. And that God, because he's a loving father, will discipline us, will cause even these things to happen, or will even use the schemes of the evil one in these things to ultimately bring about a glorious purpose, and that is to make you and I more and more like Jesus. 
So we remember these things this morning. Suffering is a fruit of salvation. So it begs two questions. One, if I am not suffering, am I being obedient? If I'm not suffering in this way, am I being obedient to Jesus? When we lose sight of God and His purposes in the midst of of our surfing, uh, suffering, we become much like the Apostle Peter. If you remember the story in the Gospels, the, the disciples are on a boat. Jesus is in the woods, I think, wilderness, because that's my favorite place to be. And he is up praying. He is away from them. And in the middle of the night, as they are resting, they begin to see what they believe to be a ghost walking across the water. As it got closer and closer to the boat, they quickly realized that it was Jesus. It was the rabbi. It was our master. It was our Lord. It was the great Messiah and Savior. And in doing so, Jesus looks at the apostle Peter and allows him to step out on the water with him. In doing so, Peter begins to walk on the water. I've tried many times running fast across the swimming pool when I was a kid to see if I could happen, and it didn't last. But when you're looking at Jesus, and when he calls you out onto the stormy waters, if you will keep your eyes upon him, then he allows Peter to walk on these troubled, stormy seas. But what does the Bible tell us? What does the gospel tell us there in those passages that immediately, or as he was doing this, that Peter began to look around? He began to look around at the waves that were crashing in around him. He began to look at this idea. Maybe he became astonished. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm actually walking on water. And in every time that he would do so, in taking his eyes off of Jesus, the gospel would tell us that Peter would begin to sink until the Lord helps him. Like many of us, when we are going through suffering and we begin to pay more attention to the waves that are crashing in on our lives because of our obedience, if we take our eyes off of Jesus, if we take our eyes off the cross and the resurrection, if we take our eyes on the, off of the promised hopes of the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we too will succumb to the culture and the crashing waves around us in sin, Satan, and death. It is true that all forms of suffering come to all people, all races, all creeds, all religious beliefs, every person, non-believer and believer. And yet the suffering that comes to a non-believer is simply a foretaste of the eternal punishment that they will receive. And yet for us as believers, we experience this in order to be purified, strengthened, and again, to form us into Christ-likeness. Let's look here at the passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Quickly, my exegesis, my explanation of the text will be brief this morning as I want to finish it up with kind of looking down through some historical truths where this plays out. In 1 Peter chapter 12, he says, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, Peter has used this idea before, but circle it, square it, do something to it, and mark this idea of where it says, Beloved. 
Because in the midst of suffering and pain, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to feel like I am unloved, that I am uncared for. It's you looking back at your dad as he disciplines you. My daddy spanked me. And looking back in it saying, if you love me, you wouldn't do this. And that is often my response to God. Lord Jesus, if I'm being faithful in proclamation, then why am I not leading a church of a bazillion? Right? Why are my sermons not the most downloaded on, on podcast? God, why don't people just jump on board with mission and vision? Man, you're being faithful. Those are the things that you can begin to question. Or if, if things happen at your job and you're like, Lord Jesus, I'm presenting the gospel to these people and yet there is not fruit from it. And they're making fun of me now. They're reviling, uh, reviling me. They're laughing at me. They're pushing me to the margins. I'm being an outcast at work because of my faith. And yet, he tells us, what are we? We are the beloved. We, this illustrated in the Greek is a formation of, of words that, that means a special relationship. And that's what God has for us. And that's what Peter extends as well to his brothers and sisters in Christ. What does he tell us there in verse 12? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Brothers, sisters, Christians, followers of Jesus, if you are obedient, you will suffer. People, family, Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. If you are being obedient, husband, wife, mother, father, children, all these things, essentially the gospel, though it is both drawing and salvific in nature, also causes division and separation. Do not be surprised by this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We must count the cost this morning. To following Jesus. If you, don't want your, if you want all your neighbors to like you, don't follow Jesus. Have a kegger. <laughs> all right? If you want all your employees around you to like you, do not follow Jesus. If you want this world to like you, do not follow Jesus. But... For those who will deem it worthy enough to be faithful at all costs, may we rise up, may we be encouraged this morning, may we know that above a lot of other things that we are the beloved of God and that we should not be surprised when these things are taking place. According to the ESV Study Bible, it says this, suffering is the norm for Christians. Not a surprising exception. See, ladies and gentlemen, the, the United States and the American church takes up a very small amount of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Though we are a part of Mission Church locally, we are also part of the global body of believers that we cannot forget about. And most of the global church is being physically persecuted and even more so verbally persecuted we've become um very you know almost um just numb in america at the idea that even someone would speak 
against our beliefs. And yet, this is what takes place throughout the world. It is, it is an exception for us not to be experiencing physical persecution on us for gathering inside of a school. It's, it's an exception even for us to be able to meet within this school. And so we must begin to understand and not only have a local view, but a global, a world view of the gospel and how important it is for all of the world to be saturated with it. When we look at this in verse 13, he tells us this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so when we endure suffering for being obedient, this passage and those other passages that are read, and I could take you to several other places within the New Testament, we begin to see that our response when this is taking place should be joy. I don't believe that what the passage is telling us here is that, man, when, when this happens that we should be like, yes, or acting like Smurfs, running around ecstatic that this is happening. That is not what the passage is telling us, but that our eternal hope, our eternal security, our resting place, and that there can even be a, a righteous holy pride in the realization of knowing God is at work in my life trying to do something while I am being treated in such a way that we could have joy. Why? Insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. Jesus was a suffering Messiah, verse 18 from chapter 3, I spent an entire sermon talking about this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Man, our desire, our heartbeat, our minds are, are set attuned at the trajectory of our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, should to be and want to be and desire to be in all aspects of your life is to share in the person and the works of Jesus, including his suffering. So may we find great joy that when we endure suffering for obedience, that Jesus, it is like Jesus, who suffered greatly, immensely, the worst suffering known to man in the cross and absorbing the full wrath of God as he took upon the sins of the bride of Christ and in doing so suffered, though he did not deserve it. And the Bible is reminding us here this morning that these believers, I'm not talking about Christians who are being jerks, but Christians who are being obedient to Jesus when they suffer, it is a small glimpse of what Jesus experienced. They do not deserve it, and yet they receive it like Jesus did. May that be true of us as well. May we find joy in the margins, hope when we are ostracized, blessings when we are the outcast, because in those places the Holy Spirit chisels away at your flesh. It is in the margins where the glory of God shines brightest through 
Jesus. See, when we are enduring suffering for obedience sake, it always pushes the firm believer, the true Christian, not away from Jesus, but to him. Before this week, how often have you prayed for Paris? Man, if you make prayer cards and I was to go through your prayer cards, even if you do that, is there one that says Paris on it? But through emits suffering of some people. And I'm not saying they were suffering for Christ's sake. But through pain and heartache and suffering, it drove the world to pray for that place. See, God is, is using these things, what I believe to be a very evil act, a very demonic act that took place. What, what evil meant for bad has caused the, the believer to be good, to be obedient, to pray. Because I'm, I'm sure that we can say out of 120-something people that were, were, were brutally murdered on that night that some of them probably were your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we pray for them. We pray for those who punish them. We pray for this group of, of terrorists. We pray that Jesus would save them. But it took suffering in order to awaken us to the need to pray for those people. And there's some crazy things that are taking place inside of Europe in regards to the church where God has been pushed out for a lot of times. And yet there's, through the Acts 29 network and other networks, a major push to go to England and to these places and to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Because why? They believe that England right now is a foretaste of America's future. He goes on in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Insulted made fun of, laughed at, spoke harmful. What does it mean to malign someone? It means to, to speak harmful untruths about them. To speak evil of, to slander, to defame. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been happening throughout the history of Christianity. It is happening more and more, even in the United States, where at one time we were celebrated and, thought, and people thought well of the church and pastors and, and us as followers of Jesus and the good charity work that we did within our city. They thought that we were a better city because of people like you and I who follow Jesus, but this is no longer the case. Even this week I read from the highest paid female actress in Hollywood right now, a good old Kentuckian, even said this in a recent article that's coming out in, in a magazine for next month, and this is what she said, I know those Christians holding those crucifixes, what they should be holding, or they might as well be holding, is a pitchfork. It's becoming the norm. Speaking against reviling against 
Ladies and gentlemen, may we find great joy in being unpopular once again. May we rejoice in the idea that, that we have that, that, that Jesus is rising a remnant in the midst of all of this chaos within our culture, that he is rising the, the true uh, and, and, and bringing to the surface the true followers of Jesus, the true church that will endure, and this will, will probably only increase as, the, as media and these sorts of outlets continue. And again, sometimes we give them reasons to make fun of us. I was just waiting for one of you to say something about a red cup from my favorite coffee place, or one of my favorite coffee places, because I was going to personally contact you. Okay? When, when they make fun of us for that, they should, because that's ridiculous. But ladies and gentlemen, there are other things. Speaking the goodness and greatness of Christ, talking about salvation, these sorts of things, the charity work that we are involved in, the that the American church is involved in, the global church is involved in, all of these things are worthy of praise. And yet I want you to know, whether it's in your cubicle or taking your kids in, in the minivan to school and, and they're talking about it, and I mean, even my own daughter, I've told you stories, has become fearful of talking about Jesus at school because she's afraid that other students will make fun of her. May we stand knowing that this is for God. Now he goes on here and he says in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, so he's saying this is different type of suffering than suffering caused by your sin. Okay, don't suffer because of your sin. That's not what we're talking about here. If you do bad things and suffer, don't blame God and say that he's, he's going to do something. He's working in you. Okay, this is not his will. This is not his desire. His desire for you to experience suffer through obedience. And then verses 16 through 19, this is what he says. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Jesus even says this, if you are ashamed of me, I am ashamed of you. In our suffering, may we have humility and yet confidence. May we not shrivel up as a hermit into its shell. May we but live forcefully and confidently in the grace of Jesus, providing that he continues to show us mercy and his will. Do not become ashamed when you are ashamed by the culture. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. What? Judgment begins within the church. And yet Peter did not mean this as a negative thing. Again, he's talking about here the idea that, that judgment, discipline, those sorts of things makes the church healthier and stronger in its mission. But he continues... For it is this time for judgment to begin in the household of God... And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not, not obey the gospel of God? And, he quotes Proverbs here, if the righteousness is scarcely saved, he's, that word scarcely there in the, in the Greek is actually, it's called difficult. It means difficult. If the righteous is um, scarcely saved, meaning it's hard, 
to be saved. Why is it hard? Because it's ultimately hard on one. God. Jesus. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So if, if we as believers are enduring this suffering and having these sorts of issues... Then, then how much more difficulty and eternal punishment will the non-believer experience? Therefore, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Mission Church, God has for us a very important thing for us to be reminded of this morning. And that is the, ultimately that God is once again in control of all things. And he is encouraging us as he has done several, several weeks here on telling us about the importance of an enduring suffering for righteousness sake. Because God's will, may we suffer according to God's will and entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Knowing while we are experiencing these heartaches, while we are experiencing these hurts, while people are relationally divorcing us because of our faith, may we trust Jesus. May we trust Jesus and brothers and sisters, this has been the framework of Christianity since the time of Christ. May we not be surprised by it. May we continue it. The Old Testament example that I want to share with you, if you could flip with me, flip back, flip left in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's probably around page 1008. In the big book of Hebrews, um, the writer of Hebrews is talking about this great hall of faith here in chapter 11. And he starts telling about all of these stories. By faith, people are saved. By faith, by faith, by faith. All these Old Testament experiences. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And all of these sorts of things. And he gets to talking about them more later on in that chapter in verses 33. Pick up there. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained prominences, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies in flight. Women received back their dead, res <clears throat> excuse me, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. Old Testament believers, faithful in God, and that is their legacy. They experience this great pain and suffering, even in the Old Testament, even before the Messiah had came, these people simply believing in a future Messiah 
We're willing to endure all of those things, all of those obedient things for the glory of God. They entrusted God even to those points. In the New Testament, when we worked through the book of Acts, we talked a lot about the suffering of the New Testament church. And I've read several of this to you all before who have heard me speak on occasion. But when we get to the New Testament, we could spend lots of times looking at um, the suffering of the early church. We can talk about Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. We could talk about um, these guys being beaten and broken and left for dead. We could say all of those things, but throughout history and Christian tradition, it, it tells this about those faithful men, especially, that we see within the New Testament and where they ended up. I think I have a picture for this somewhere. Peter, who wrote this letter, was was crucified upside down, correct? At his request, because he, he did not want to be killed the same way that Jesus was killed. He continued to preach until the point where Nero killed him. Paul was also martyred in Rome. It is believed that, that he was beheaded because he would not stop preaching that Jesus was Lord. The disciple Andrew, he went to the land of meat, uh, man-eaters, they called it, is now called the Soviet Union. Christians were claim, <clears throat> there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, so where Peter is even writing now, and in Greece, and he is said to have been crucified. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? That guy? Was probably the most active in the sea of East area east of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where the ancient um, Christians there revere him, uh, revere him as their founder. They claim that he died there when pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor, where he, was, where he converted the wife of a Roman uh, proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put him to death. Disciple Matthew, the tax collector, was the writer of the gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. That's in the you know, middle of Africa. Some of the oldest reports say that he was not martyred, while others say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew. As widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition to India with Thomas, back to Armenia, then to Ethiopia and South Arabia. There are various accounts on how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel. James is one of, <clears throat> of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. There's some confusion as to which, which one this is, but it is believed that James was reckoned to have ministered in Syria. And then Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that he was eventually stoned and clubbed to death for the gospel. Simon, he ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to a sun god. Matthias, you know the guy that draws straws there in the book of Acts, he takes Judas. We all know what happened to Judas, right? Killed himself. Matthias, whoop, you're the guy, you're the new disciple was the apostle chosen to replace Jesus, uh, Judas. Tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and death by burning. John, 
is the only one who is believed to have died of old age. But it wasn't because they didn't try to kill him. They actually dropped him in a vat of boiling hot wax by a rope, pulled him up expecting it to probably be burning flesh or skeleton, and when they did so, nothing was wrong. So what do you do with a guy you can't kill? You put him on an island by himself. He's exiled. And what happens there when his ex- while he's being exiled? God comes down to him and gives him the book of Revelation. Whoops, they messed up, right? They messed up. See, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. These men, and we can talk about women as well, but, but specifically these men that we see in the New Testament Christian tradition and history tells us that they all ended up, except for John, giving their lives because they trusted God and were willing to suffer for this gospel message going forth. If we look at this, what's interesting about this is in Jerusalem is where this all started. This band of brothers, this family, they were willing to come together and at all costs to glorify God and to obey him as he said to take this gospel where? To the ends of the earth. And as much as they loved each other, as much as they were family and, and enjoyed each other's company, as much as they needed one another, what does even this map show us? They were willing to be sent out and willing to go wherever it took, even into hostile territory for the sake of the gospel. I mean, Doubting Thomas, look, he ends up at the very bottom of India preaching the gospel there. It spreads to the known world through a ragamuffin group of fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners. Probably the most uneducated group of people that you could get. This was not the 1990s dream team. This was a bunch of losers whom Jesus saved and God changed and commissioned them and gave them abilities and giftedness beyond their abilities. And it changed the world. Insomuch that by the 1500s, what Peter was speaking against. He did not want the culture to invade the church. He didn't want the church to be indoctrinated and intoxicated by sin, Satan, and death and the way that the world did these things. But by the 1500s, ladies and gentlemen, this had happened. By the 1500s, the Catholic Church had become a total debacle. It had become something and an entity that was joined into politics, and in doing so, had, had completely walked away from what it meant to be a spiritual or a biblical church. If you remember, King King VIII was in charge during this time and just continued to cause great division amongst God's people and the church. After he died, his son, King Edward, became in charge. And in doing so, he had several men and people who gave him counsel. And, and two of those was Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Both of these men were faithful followers of Jesus. Ridley was a, a pastor, and his congregation loved him. And I love listening about this guy. This, this guy was so loved by his congregation. Here's the reason why. He believed the Bible, and it, because he believed it, it played out in his life. 
And so he was, he was constantly loving on his church, preaching the gospel and, and encouraging his family. They had family devotionals. See, this isn't a new thing. They had family devotionals, and he also encouraged his, um, his, his congregation members to memorize Scripture. Latimer was also a pastor and preacher. He also believed in Jesus. He believed the Scripture. And, and he was a, a passionate preacher and teacher. He believed that, that the, the following of Jesus and serving the Lord should be done with the true heart of inward affection, not just for outward show. So he didn't want you to just be churched up and just go through the motions. He wanted it to be an out, external outflowing of an internal salvation. And so it led him to do a lot of prison work ministry because of his beliefs. Now these two men believed that the church there in England, and the Roman Catholic Church, needed to come back to God. That they needed to follow Jesus. That they had strayed away from what it meant to be gospel-centered and, and to actually be pursuing after God. Edwards wouldn't listen to him, and his sister Mary became the queen. And Mary hated this idea of coming back to the biblical gospel and the biblical truth and for the church to return to that. So in doing so, she had these two men who were giving her former brother um, encouragement to lead the church in this way. And in doing so, captured these two men. When Ridley was asked if, if he believed that the Pope was the heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth, Peter confessed, that Christ was the Son of God. Really said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory, not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic Mass as a sacrifice of Christ. Latimer told his commissioners, Christ made one, um, excuse me, made one sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And that perfect sacrifice neither needed there to be nor can there be any other sacrifice. Needless to say, these opinions were not appreciated. And they captured these men, and in October 16th of 1555, these two men, along with Thomas Kramer, were burned at the stake because of these truths. As they were burning... Listen to what Ridley said, prayed, Old Heavenly Father, I give unto thee the most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee. You're becoming charred. You're dying. I can't think of a worse way to die than being burned to death. And while this man is doing this, he is praying to God, thanking him that he has the opportunity to be a professor of the even unto death. And in doing so, said, I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all of their enemies. Ridley's brother had brought some gunpowder to the men and tried to put it around their neck so that they would catch on fire quickly. But the, the wood that they had placed around these men was actually really green. So it was taking longer for these men to burn. Let 
Vladimir, listen to what this man says as he is burning. Vladimir died much more quickly than Ridley did. And this is what he said, comforting his brother in Christ. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall it be put out. No matter how much they've tried, even today, there is still remnant of believers and the church taking place inside of England. Why? Because of faithful men like these. Faithful men who are willing to suffer even to the point of having their flesh burnt off of their bodies for the sake of Christ. Mary became known as Bloody Mary ended up killing about 200 people, most of them because they were followers of Jesus and wanted to see their church reformed. So she killed them. Skip ahead to the 1970s. When I... Heroes of faith. I love listening to this man talk. Why? Because he's not from America. He's from India, and he has a great voice. He's so smart. Ravi Ravi Zacharias tells this story. Ravi Zacharias was ministering um, in the early 1970s in Vietnam. If you know anything about history, that's an interesting time, especially in Vietnam. And while he's preaching the gospel in Vietnam, he comes across a 17-year-old Christian who's really energetic. I just think of like this chihuahua kind of guy about Jesus, right? He just, Jesus, Jesus, and, and he's Vietnamese, and he becomes Ravi's interpreter. And, and Ravi tells this story. He says he, they circle all over Vietnam preaching the gospel, and this guy named Hen, this 17-year-old kid, it's his interpreter. This guy loves Jesus and loves preaching with Ravi. And so they're preaching the gospel all over the place. And after this time ended there, um, you know, Ravi kept on going, and, and they had become great friends. But when they said bye to each other, they never knew if they would ever see each other again. And it wasn't until 17 years later that Ravi ran into his old friend, Hen. And immediately... Ravi hugs him, and he begins to ask him questions like, so what's, what happened in your life? And he's like, Ravi, I can't wait to tell you my story and my journey with Jesus. Once you moved on, the Vietnamese soldiers came and captured me because I was a Christian and because I was helping the Americans and interpreting for them. So they slapped me into prison, and in being in prison for almost two years, they continued to indoctrinate me with Marxism and all sorts of other belief systems that opposed God to convince me that the God that I believed in, the Jesus that I believed in and followed and trusted, was no God at all, and that he did not exist. And he confessed to Ravi, and he said, Ravi, I began to believe it. 
He said, all of my life I had prayed almost every day, but the punishment, the mental torture became so bad that I laid in my bunk one night and I I said this, tomorrow when I wake up, I will no longer be a Christian. I will no longer pray as I have done every day of my life, or since he was able to pray. And, And in doing so, I will no longer stand for this because there is no way that a God like this would allow me to experience and endure this. They must be right. Hen tells Robbie that the next morning that the commander of the prison came to Hen and said, Hen, you had the lucky job of cleaning the latrines today. Hen said he went into the latrine and you can't imagine the picture of this bathroom. It was disgusting. The smell alone would cause a man to vomit. Hen said he went over to the Next to the toilet, there was a trash can that was overflowing with used toilet paper. And he reached down to to pick up that toilet paper and to put it in a trash bag. And he saw, because again, this is in the 1970s, and I guess they didn't have Charmin, or they didn't over there. And they just had paper that they would use for magazines and books. And he said he, he went to, to pick up the trash, and when we get to dump it into a bigger trash bag, that he saw some broken English on a sheet of used paper. He so loved the English language that he thought, and I think this is disgusting, he wadded it up and put used paper in his pocket. That night after all of his bunkmates went to sleep, Hen tells a story that he reached into his pocket and they pulled out that paper. And when he pulled out that paper, he noticed in English at the top of it that it said Romans chapter 8. After he wiped off the human feces from the paper, this is what he read. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re, <clears throat> real, excuse me, reviling of the sons of God. Revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the sons and the redemption of the bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is seen sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we pray as though we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, groaning too deep for words. And the, who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those 
who love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And He kept on reading as tears were running down this man's faith. He says back to God, God, even you won't let me walk away from you. The next morning when he got up, he went to his colonel and he said, can I clean the latrines every day? And every day he went to clean that toilet. One of the the military officers had been using a Bible that a missionary had given him. And every day he would be ripping one page at a time to wipe his hind in with the gospel according to the book of Romans. And in doing so, Hen would go in there, wipe that man's mess off, and collected, started collecting the book of Romans and reading it every day. Through a series of events, they eventually let Hen go. And in doing so, he gathered up about 50 other men, and they started to build a boat saying, man, we got to get away from this place. We've got to seek refuge somewhere else. And so they started to build this boat. And as they were building this boat, a group of soldiers that, were in prison, that had been in prison him came to him and said, hey, Hen, we, we know what you're doing here. Are you trying to build a boat so that you can escape? And Hen tells this story and says that he lied to those men and said, no. We're just building a boat. Later on that day, Hen began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life, realizing that he had lied to those men. And God had rescued him one time. He was willing to do whatever it took, even if that meant give his life. And he said to God, if those men come back to me and they ask me what I'm doing, I'm going to tell them the truth. On the day that they were ready to ship off 50-something men, those four soldiers came back to him. They said, Hen, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to escape. And Hen, boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit, looked at those four men and said, you are exactly right. Are you here to kill me? Those men in soft voices leaned into Hen and said, no, we want to go with you. The story continues that the men got out in the middle of the ocean and a huge storm came. And they were all going to lose their lives if not for those four men who were sailors and knew how to guide that ship. See, God's suffering was empowered and in the midst of a terrible situation. The glory of God came. The power of God came. In the midst of a man willing to suffer, God was using something terrible for his good and for ultimately God's glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot forget the persecuted church. We cannot try to excuse ourselves from persecution. Even today, in closing, worldwide statistics from the Open Doors International, this is, should grip us. 322 Christians are killed every month because of their obedience to Jesus. 214 Christian churches or properties every month are destroyed. Every month, 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, 
rapes, arrest, abductions, and forced marriages. My hope and prayer this morning, if anything, is that we would be reminded of the importance of suffering and seeing it not as a punishment, but as an opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness. But all morning long, what I felt in my spirit, in myself, whatever you want to call it, is that we as a church need to be awakened to the global yet historical persecution of the church. And I'm not saying that we should pray that it should happen here. But I think that we should pray that if and when it does, that we will remain faithful. That we will remain secure, not in our own work, but in the work of Jesus upon the cross and in His resurrection. That we as a group of people, maybe if it's even small ways as American Christians, would begin to ask God to help us to be more obedient. Realizing that if there is more obedience, there will simultaneously probably be more persecution, even in small ways but that we would be willing to endure it. Because it is not something new, ladies and gentlemen. It is from Genesis to Revelation. It is from the early church to 2015 in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It is our story. It is our history. It is the example laid before us in Christ Jesus to be a suffering people for His glory and for our good. Let's pray.